This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The people spreading conspiracy theories seem to want to use conspiracy theories not to explain what seems inexplicable, but almost as a blunt force object to dehumanize your opponents, to score political points, to discredit or cast something or someone as illegitimate. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. How does a murder during a robbery gone wrong become an international conspiracy theory? What's it like when your loved one's memory is hijacked by people in service of their political agendas? What even is a true crime story in the post-truth era? I'm going to talk about all of these things and more with my guest today, Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine, where he wrote extensively about the Seth Rich case. He's also written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. And most importantly today, he's the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. Andy, it's a treat to welcome you to Politicology. Thanks for being here. The pleasure is all mine. I've been really looking forward to this. So why don't we start with the beginning here? And I promise we will do this conversation with no spoilers because this is a, this is a, this is a story you want to be captivated by. So why don't you start by talking about what drew you to the Seth Rich story and writing the book in the first place? What first pulled me into this story was a personal connection, which made it different than the usual big project that I would undertake or that really any journalist would undertake. You know, you, you are drawn to a subject, you're drawn to a beat, you're drawn to a, a person in the news. And that wasn't the case with this story, with the Seth Rich story. I live in Washington, D.C. I've been here for more than a decade. I traveled in some of the same social circles as Seth Rich did. We had friends in common. Some of my friends were actually good friends of his. And I even made several lame attempts to play competitive soccer on a rec soccer team that he also played on, uh, as one does when one is in their late 20s in Washington, D.C. So there were, these, there were these personal dots that connected him and me. And then in the summer of 2016, I'm traveling for a story far away from Washington, D.C., and my phone lights up. And it's a text message from a friend who I hadn't heard from in a little while, so I was a little surprised. And the text message said, you won't believe this. And it was a link to a story in a local outlet here in D.C. And the story said that Seth had been shot and killed a, a day earlier at 
about four-ish in the morning on July 10th, 2016, I remember feeling shock and a bit of confusion. The classic sort of, wait, is this actually happening? How did this happen? I can't believe that this is happening to someone that I kind of know. I remember reading it on my phone, scrolling through it, and then kind of tossing the phone on the, the passenger seat of my crappy rental car and letting this horrible news kind of wash over me. And returning to DC eventually, I thought, you know, there would be a funeral, there would be remembrances for him, which there were here in DC and also back in his hometown of Omaha. And then his family would be able to take their time in private, away from the media, away from the noise, all of that, and grieve this horrible thing that had happened. The loss of a son, the loss of a brother. No one wants to go through that. And that is not what happened, as I tell in the book. The opposite happens, which is Seth's life and his death become this international media phenomenon. And I followed this phenomenon for weeks after it happened, not as a reporter, but as a peer almost, as a, uh, someone who was in the same milieu as Seth socially. And then eventually I remember sometime in the fall of 2016, a switch flipped in my head and I had to switch from friend mode, peer mode to journalist mode. I eventually I had to, had to understand why is this happening? How did this happen? And that was, you know, more than five years ago. And I just went down this path of trying to figure this out, not knowing where it would take me. And it took me to some pretty uh, incredible, unbelievable places, which is really what forms the basis of this book. I want to get to some of those unbelievable places and moments. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Seth Rich. For the people who have heard the name, give us a sense of, you know, before he became an international name, part of these conspiracy theories, what was his life like? And can you describe the sort of social circle that you're talking about? Yeah. And some of this will definitely sound familiar to you, Ron, as someone who who, who knows this world. But you know, DC is a magnet for young, ambitious, idealistic, you know, politically motivated young people. You can walk around Capitol Hill in the summer and you will just see these packs of young people walking the sidewalks, going to and from the Capitol, going to the, you know, dingy dive bars. Many of them still wearing their like Capitol Hill lanyards around their necks that they have to use to get into the building. And it's just a type. And Seth was, in a lot of ways, one of those types. I mean, I would call myself one of those types. I didn't gravitate toward politics. I, I, I gravitated to journalism, to reporting. Seth was much more in the political mold. But he arrived here for a similar reason, which was he wanted to come to DC and be in the center of the action. He wanted to be where the decisions got made, the politicians came to do their work, the people who elected those politicians especially operate out of DC, and he wanted to be in that world. He was an idealistic guy. He was a true believer in the power of the vote. When he was killed, he was working at the Democratic National Committee, which is obviously the 
central organizing hub for the Democratic Party, just like the RNC is for the Republican Party. He was working on the voter expansion team. And this was really a cause, uh, a line of work that he, that he believed in, like down to the marrow in his bones. I, I talked to an old girlfriend of his from college for the book, and she remembered fondly him really urging her to vote. And I believe it was the 2008 election. He knew that she was from a conservative family and would not be voting for a Democrat, would not be voting for Barack Obama that year, as Seth would. But he didn't care. He wanted her to vote no matter who she was voting for because he believed that the country was at its best and that it worked when everyone was voting regardless of of their party. So he was this wonderful mix of ambition and uh, idealism and almost like a too earnest to be true uh, belief in, in, in how democracy should work. I mean, maybe that's us Midwestern guys. We just have that sort of, you know, Midwest, uh, that earnest streak in us that we can't shake. But uh, he really was a bright light who I think was destined for bigger things. And that, that light was unfortunately extinguished in a really tragic way in 2016. So let's lay out the facts that we know. Can you talk about what police and prosecutors know about the night Seth Rich was murdered? And then we'll get into some of the conspiracy theories and, uh, and what pursuing them was like for you. I call this book a true crime story for the post-truth era, which means that there is a crime at the beginning, and the crime is Seth's murder on July 10th, 2016. This is what we know about that murder. He lived in a neighborhood in D.C. called Bloomingdale. In the summer of 2016, Bloomingdale, which is this small, tree-lined, brick-row house-filled pocket of D.C., like a lot of D.C., caught up in a sort of years-long wave of, of gentrification and you know the house is getting more and more expensive and new people moving in. And Bloomingdale was the site of a pretty terrifying series of armed robberies throughout the summer of 2016. I went back and I talked to community leaders, neighbors, former police, and that neighborhood was really living on edge for most of the summer of 2016 because people were getting robbed at gunpoint all summer long, especially late at night especially people who were talking or on their phones while they're walking late at night, which everyone listening, please don't do that. <laughs> I can tell you, please don't do that. The police are under a lot of pressure to try to step up their protection in this neighborhood and try to get this problem under control. And then, as if there was another variable needed in this combustible situation, the whole neighborhood is ripped up because DC is putting this new tunnel system underground in the neighborhood because there's flooding in Bloomingdale all the time. And so there are these tarp-covered fences everywhere. And in fact, this project is still ongoing and you can still see these fences nearby Cecil neighborhood today, amazingly. So the neighborhood's kind of a maze. The lights that have been put up to try to make it brighter and safer at night are going out, as former neighbors at the, as neighbors at the time told me. And Seth is walking home far too late at night than he should have from a bar. And what the police believe happened is that he was confronted by two people, at least one of whom was armed, that, that he was talking on the phone at the time. 
talking to his ex-girlfriend and that there was potentially a struggle. They tried to rob him. There, his wrist, the, the wristband on his watch was torn and he was shot several times. And then the people who did that fled the neighborhood and the police and EMT were quick to the scene. They were there within minutes, found him lying in the street and took him to a nearby emergency room, but they could not save him. The wounds he sustained from the gunshots were too severe. So that is what the police have told us. And that is what I learned in my own reporting, which involved talking to lots of people familiar with this case, including a former federal prosecutor who worked directly on it. So it fit this pattern of armed robberies in the Bloomingdale neighborhood, but there's just enough uncertainty there. Why was he shot and killed when others weren't? Why wasn't anything stolen from him when others weren't? That questions start to spring up within really hours after his death being announced to the public. It's early on in the book that you talk about some of the conspiracy theories around 9-11, and you make the point that in the past, conspiracy theories have been about trying to make sense of difficult events. How have you seen that evolve over the last six to seven years? And how would you contrast that with the conspiracy theories you tried to untangle around Seth Rich's murder? Conspiracy theories have been around for as long as humans have, more or less. There is a huge history of conspiracy theories of every variety in our past, including and especially in American history. You can go back to the founders before there was a United States of America and the men trying to create a United States of America are promoting conspiracy theories. This inclination to try to apply order to chaos or to try or to see suspicion where maybe there isn't any is just baked into us. That was one thing that I It's a human thing. Yeah, it's a human thing. Exactly. And that that's one thing that I really came to better understand as I was reporting the book. I think it's just a basic element of human psychology, especially in the face of events or news that just seems to defy common sense or seems just beyond the realm of logic. I talk about the conspiracy theories after the 9-11 attack in the book a lot because they were a massive source of wild and fantastical claims. And there's a whole movement, the 9-11 truth movement, which is where I think where this phrase truther really comes from, devoted to looking for alternative theories looking for clues to suggest that 9-11 wasn't what we were all told that it was, a terrorist attack. What seems to have changed in the last six or seven years is that conspiracy theories have become weaponized in a way that it didn't seem like they were to the same extent in decades past. Obviously, there were tons of conspiracy theories around the Clintons. There were conspiracy theories around Kennedy. I found some around Nixon, obviously, Reagan and others. But aliens. Aliens, exactly. I mean, you can. there's a long, long, rich history of this. And there are a lot of really interesting books yeah. out there about it as well. And I would add, too, that 
that no one party or ideology or end of the political spectrum has a monopoly on conspiratorial thinking. You can find it on all ends. But what seems to change in recent years is that these conspiracy theories are much more weaponized by one side to demonize the other. The people spreading conspiracy theories, like former President Donald Trump, to take one, seem to want to use conspiracy theories not to explain what seems inexplicable, but almost as a blunt force object to dehumanize your opponents, to score political points, to discredit or cast something or someone as illegitimate. You look at the conspiracy theories that former President Trump put out there, and they're not positing some super elaborate set of connections or networks or uh, uh, an actual conspiracy for why things happen. They just are kind of dehumanizing attacks on people he doesn't like. And this is, I think, a, a more a more recent vintage, a newer iteration of, of the sort of conspiratorial thinking. And it really is a sort of fixture of our politics now in a way that it wasn't in decades past. I think the understanding of conspiracy theories as a new weapon in an arsenal of information warfare is really useful to think about because it sounds like the way they can be used is to exploit some really natural tendencies human beings have to fill a void of information to the end of maximizing political power um, or, or, or personal advantage as opposed to a meaning-making device, however uh, ill-conceived. Is that what you found? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the specific notion of meaning-making is what people have to understand and what is absent in the more recent vintage, if you will, of, of conspiracy theories. In the past, you know, it, I think people were looking to conspiracy theories, were looking to alternative answers out of a sense of feeling disconnected from either their elected officials, their cultural icons, things in the news, you name it. It really was a sense of, I don't know where I fit into this and I don't understand what's going on in my country, but I'm trying to figure it out. And maybe it's led me down this rabbit hole of sorts as opposed to you know, what the official story is, what the facts seem to point to. But now it seems that conspiracy theories are wielded just as much to confuse people, to disorient them, to make them feel as if they don't know who's right and who's wrong, who's telling the truth and who is not. You know, when I travel for work, when I meet people on the road covering campaign events, interviewing people for stories, you, you name it, I've heard that more and more in the last half decade, a sort of a rhetorical throwing up of the arms and saying, well, they're saying one thing. These other folks are saying something different. These are completely at odds with each other factually. So I don't know what to believe. And I'm just going to sort of tune out or I'm going to take matters into my own hands in a way that I wouldn't necessarily before or, or say that voting isn't the answer when I'm stuck in this, in this, uh, this place where I don't know who's right, who's wrong, what's real, what's not. That to me is very much a, a more recent phenomenon and obviously a really dangerous one if we're talking about 
a functioning democracy. Can you talk a little bit about how that played out in Seth's story? What drew me to this story wasn't only the true crime element of it. You have this unsolved murder that lights a fuse on really an unbelievable series of events, but also a feeling that Seth's story, story of his family and what they had to go through and what they did to push back was part of a larger story, a meta story uh, in, in the country. And that all of these things that I, I was trying to make sense of that were kind of floating around in their own disparate way, that these conspiracy theories soaking into our politics, the uh, election of Donald Trump, the role of social media in the national debate and the polarization of our politics, all of these things sort of felt wrapped around this specific story about Seth. And, and, and so I decided that I could tell two stories at once, the story specifically of Seth and his family and that narrative, but also a narrative of trying to make sense again of how we got to this place where people are just kind of tossing up their hands and saying, I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not. Um, and I, I don't trust anyone anymore. And then we're in uncharted territory. So all of these things kind of came together, uh, as did this incredible cast of characters that's in the book as well. One of the main features of the conspiracy theorization around uh, Seth's story is Hillary's emails. Uh, How do you think the desire to blame the DNC leak on anyone but Russia played into this? It was absolutely a big part of it. And if we can cast our minds back to the summer of 2016 and that, that incredibly tumultuous election, which feels like ancient history now, but wasn't really that long ago. Yeah. You see this issue of emails and leaking. WikiLeaks is obviously in the mix here as well. Julian Assange is kind of sowing doubt and, and kicking up dirt about the source of these DNC emails that WikiLeaks published. And, and you really see an early example of this fight for what is actually true here. How serious actually is this Hillary Clinton email issue? As it turns out, not a earth-shattering matter of complete national security importance. She probably should have been more careful, but the national security of the country was not at stake here. You have that sort of mixed in as well with these leaked emails that first WikiLeaks publishes from the DNC, then of course from John Podesta. The intelligence community says that we have a pretty strong confidence that the Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU, was behind this. And obviously that evidence only gets more conclusive the further we go. But there is just an all-out I know I'm giving people 2016 PTSD here, yeah, but Yeah, you are. <laughs> there's just a little bit of that. Um But there's just an all-out campaign to try to muddy the waters around what actually happened in 2016. And this pretty extraordinary act of interference and really a a cyber attack by a foreign country on our soil to disrupt that election. And as supporters of the president, in addition to WikiLeaks, are muddying the water around this, right in the middle of all that, is the 
tragic death of this young man, Seth Rich. And it does capture something about our politics that within a month, you have Roger Stone suggesting that the Clintons had had Seth Rich killed. You have all of these different politically infused conspiracy theories come up about a, you know, a guy who had been tragically killed in a, in a, you know, what's by all indications is a, just a horrible case of wrong place, wrong time. But that was the political environment in that moment. And really it feels like we have been in 2016 for the last six years, almost. It, I know people say that on Twitter, it's like 2016 never ended, but in some ways it never has. And that is also shown through this book that, you know, the, the, those, those warring sides, that sort of tribal approach to politics yeah, continues on. From, from from that election onward. Yeah, well, we're now, 2016, I, I, I think of as sort of when truth began to die, really. And we've been swimming in that water ever since. Um, it sounds like the big inflection points, right, in this saga happened when a major public figure leaned into the conspiracy theory. You mentioned Assange and Roger Stone, and then there was Alex Jones, uh, and there was uh, Fox News personalities, Sean Hannity, can you describe how attention shifted as these figures waded into the conspiracy? As I went back and retraced the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, I almost thought of myself as a kind of social media archaeologist in a way. I was going back and unearthing old tweets and videos, television segments. I had my little imaginary brush, and there I am out in the out in the uh, in the world, the wilds looking for clues and, and piecing this thing back together. And what I saw was the origin of this conspiracy theory, interestingly enough, seemed to be on the far left. You really first started to see hmm. hardcore supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders, who was running for president at the time, and the Green Party candidate at the time as well, Jill Stein, first point to Seth's murder and say, hmm, this doesn't look right. Something suspicious happened here. And eventually, this conspiracy theory moves to the other side when Roger Stone and Julian Assange have their, have their moment where they promote this. And so while it's organic, it seemed to be very much organic, I don't think that a conspiracy theory of any kind, especially this one, survives the way that it did without these super spreader moments to borrow from yeah. our pande recent <laughs> pandemic our recent history. pandemic trauma yeah yeah exactly sorry everyone <laughs> when i went back and i charted out the the trajectory of this of this Seth Rich conspiracy theory julian assange's interviews in 2016 were one of those super spreader moments you have other big political figures roger stones another one but no moment came close to matching what happened when Fox News championed this theory about Seth. It wasn't even close. It wasn't anywhere near what, 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 what Assange had said before. It was so much past that. I think Fox's role in this really exemplifies how Fox fits into the bigger picture of, of American media. These things don't originate with Fox News. Fox News is not the first place you will hear, whether it's something about Seth Rich, uh, 
back in its day or these theories about the great replacement theory or any of the other hard-edged conspiratorial big narratives that that Fox News puts out there. The election denying comments after the 2020 election is another example. Fox News doesn't start that stuff, but Fox is at the center of that conservative media ecosystem. And there is nothing on the magnitude of when Fox gets a hold of something and blasts it out to the world. That was really true with the the Seth Rich story. And the other thing that came out of this, this book that I realized about Fox is once Fox has taken your story and blasted it to the masses, there's no putting that back in the box. I think the Rich family might have believed for a while after Seth's passing that, you know, maybe all this online noise will die down. Maybe it will at least, it will go, maybe it will go away or it will at least shrink to such a level that we won't notice it anymore and that it won't really be a big deal if we search Seth's name online or, you know, his Google footprint, if you will. After Fox, though, all of that changed. There was no going back after that. The, the Google search results for Seth Rich would, would never be the same. And, and so I think Fox is this, it's at the top of this, this, this pyramid almost in, in conservative media. And once it's gotten there, it's never going away. Can you talk about what you learned about the role of money in conspiracy theories, the conspiracy theory economy, you might say? Yeah, the conspiracy theory industrial complex, (laughs) as I've heard it referred to. This is one of those things that, to my mind, makes this moment that we're in so much different from the past when it comes to conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theories. Again, these things have been around forever. They're just part of how our mind works. But if you go back to the pre-internet era, there weren't a lot of tools available to you if you were a conspiracy theorist to beam your theories to the masses. You needed a printing press or you needed a pirate radio station. You needed access to some kind of you know, uh, apparatus that would help you get your uh, your pamphlets out. You know, you stood in a public square somewhere and and hoped that someone would snatch one of those pieces of paper out of your hand. One one great example I remember was a, a famous anarchist from the early 20th century in New York City who would go to the top of a really tall apartment building and dump a box of his pamphlets out a window, and they would flutter down <laughs> to the sidewalks of Manhattan. And he would hope people would snatch them out of the air or off the ground and read them. That was mass communicating yeah. in the early 20th century. In, in a lot of ways, too, I just think that conspiracy theorists were a guy sitting at a bar with two or three of his friends or co-workers saying, oh, you know, I don't really think Elvis is dead. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, that moon landing looks fake to me. Stanley Kubrick probably directed that. What's different now is the tools available to you if you're a conspiracy theorist. And of course, to, to anyone else who's trying to put a message out into the world, right. are just so much more powerful 
again, if you, you hit that algorithm just right on Facebook or Twitter, you can reach millions of people in what, an hour, a day. You can use these tools basically for free. Twitter, Facebook, these live streaming apps now. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there that, that is, you know, the, these, these online talk radio equivalents. The, the, the tools are, are, are many and most of them are so easy to use. And then to add the cherry on top, if you're really, really good, good in quotes, at using these tools with, to spread your, your, your conspiracy theories about whatever, people will pay you for it because you can ask them to donate to you or to subscribe. And again, a lot of the things I'm describing are used by millions of people to talk about their hobbies, to talk about sports, to talk about news, talk about politics. There's nothing wrong with that. But these tools are also available to people who are going to try to reach millions of Americans out there and say that Seth Rich was basically a traitor to his own country who stole emails from his employer and gave them to WikiLeaks. Yeah. And they can get rewarded and paid for those messages. And that is very different from, from the past and opens up a whole big box of difficult questions about what do we do now that you can get that message out to the masses well before you can fact check it um, uh, using this, this social media and sort of big technology. Yeah, that's right. That's one of the big questions I spoke with a couple of Stanford professors about uh, their new book, System Error, about exactly this problem, about algorithms essentially rewarding the most incendiary information, that the way these platforms are designed, they, they, they hack our attention and then monetize it. And the, in particular, the, the engineers that are right, making these decisions, the coders that are making these decisions have really no training or equipment, you know, uh, uh, mental equipment to think about the, the ethical consequences of, of the, of the technology choices that they're making. Um, so this really, uh, it really does open up a, a, an entire sort of landscape of problems. One of the things that you and I have talked about, I think in the past about one of the most famous conspiracy theories, QAnon, um, is what it says about us as a society, right? That this information uh, spreads so easily. What what our sort of propensity to believe the unbelievable um, says about all kinds of things. For example, uh, the state of mental health care in America. And uh, it, it's kind of a window into all of these other social ills that we still have festering, right? How did, how were you thinking about the landscape in that way as you're, as you're trying to untangle fact from fiction in, in these conspiracy theories? Because as we know, the best lies are the ones that have truth mixed in, right? That you have lies sort of wrapped around a nugget of truth, which is what happened in Seth Rich's case. How, how, how were you thinking about that as you, as you went on this journey? What I hoped to do with the book, what I hope readers will find in the book, is that those bigger themes, those, those deeper questions about what is in the air, what is in the ground, what is 
causing people to believe these things or to spread these things. I hope that that they will find those ideas sort of embedded throughout the story, that they will, in the different characters, in the different flashpoints, understand in a deeper way all the different factors that I think play into something like, say, QAnon. And I think a few of those factors, just to spell them out quickly, are one, obviously, there is a trust problem in this country. There is a deep, deep decline in trust in media, in elected officials, in now we're seeing it in in public health institutions, in those key institutions and organizations and in some ways pillars of our democracy. These are the things that are the basic structure of what makes our country what it is. Of civilization. Of civilization, exactly. I mean, and another one, building on that exact point, is it's not only a, a loss of trust, but I think it's also a loss of connection. Now, that may seem counterintuitive when in the age of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of this sort of stuff, we kind of feel more connected than ever. I know what all my former high school classmates have been doing for years and how many kids they have, where they went on vacation and all that kind of stuff, thanks to Facebook and all all the other social media platforms. And so we're connected in that very superficial way. It's very flimsy. But I think the, yeah, it's flimsy. It's shallow. It is, you know, very surface level. It is not the sort of deeper level of connection that, happens between a group of people that allows them to say, have a civil debate about things they don't agree on necessarily, or allows them to get together and, and have a kind of cohesive network, a town, a city, an organization, you name it, even if they don't agree on every political issue, because the political issues don't define them, their connections, their bonds define them. You know, I interviewed people who believe in QAnon, which of course is absolutely bonkers crazy. I mean, if you if you look at QAnon, the notion that a secret pedophile cabal of elites is secretly ruling the world and only Donald Trump can stop them, I mean, it is it is absolutely patently absurd. But there are millions of people who genuinely believe it or something like it is real. And it explains to them many of the ills of our country. That to me is not only an indication of the diminishment of trust in political elites, media elites, you name it, but I think it is also people seeking some kind of community, some bond with others where they can talk, where they can feel like they're not being judged. It's just sad that it's happening in the context of something as insane as QAnon. But I think it's because not to go, you know, full Robert Putnam bowling alone on you here, but I think it's because all of these other community-centric, person-centric bonds that they used to have 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 faded away, have atrophied, and they look for those connections online, and it often points them into things like QAnon or Seth Rich conspiracy theories or Pizzagate, you name it. And we now live in a world where those things can actually be weaponized for the personal political monetary 
gain of an individual organization that means to do social ill. Um, I want to personalize this a little bit for our listeners um, and talk about reputation more broadly, um, especially for people who have already died. Um, but I want to know how this reporting shaped how you think about reputation um, and what our listeners could take away from that lesson. The epigraph of the book is a line from Othello. And I won't read it here and, and, and go full English lit professor on you and our listeners. <laughs> but the takeaway of it is our name and our reputation is the essential thing that we have. You can take away my wealth. You can take away my belongings. But the worst thing you can do is take away my name, my reputation. The story in the book chronicles, however, just that very thing happening. How Seth's name was for a time taken from him or how people tried to take that name or turn that name into something that it most decidedly was not. Seth's name was turned into hashtags. His name was Seth Rich. I am Seth Rich. It was an alt-right rallying cry on Reddit on election night 2016 where people were saying that Seth was looking down on them from heaven cheering on Trump's victory. I mean, it had just been turned and transformed and remade into something completely unrecognizable. I've always thought about name and reputation because I'm in journalism. You know, we're, we're in a field, you and I, where our name is on everything. And I'm sure for my own sake, that there is some appeal to that. Maybe that's in part what drew me to this was you get to see your byline on a story or now on the cover of a book. But I never contemplated how your name, the, the thing that is most essential you could be turned into something so diametrically opposite to what it was until I wrote this book. Now, to not make it fully doom and gloom for our listeners, the the final third of the book is all about how Seth's family, after going through not just the tragic death of a son and a brother, but also all of this conspiratorial aftermath, they decided finally that they had to fight back, that they had to find some way at the end of the day to restore Seth's name and his reputation, getting back to that idea. In the it, in the case of Seth's parents, Joel and Mary, that meant filing a lawsuit in federal court in New York against Fox News. These are two wonderful, unassuming, very not political people, Joel and Mary Rich, people who I've had the great privilege to spend a lot of time with in, in the last few years. They decide that they are going to sue the most powerful media company in America. And that lawsuit ends with them winning a settlement. And there's a, a Fox story that was retracted in the process that said a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't true about Seth. And it really did end with a measure of justice for them. Aaron, Seth's older brother, his only brother, filed a lawsuit of his own against three people who had 
defamed him just for Aaron trying to defend his brother. And Aaron, too, won an apology and retractions. It wasn't easy for any of them. Suing Fox is not easy. <laughs> Even if you're Dominion voting and you, you have all of the money in the world to spend on lawyers or whatever, it's not easy. But this was a, a, a modest, apolitical Midwestern family. But they did it because I think that at the end of the day, getting back to the, the question that you asked, they realized that there is nothing more fundamental than your name, your reputation. It is who you are. And they would go to the end of the earth and pretty much did to restore that for Seth. And so at least I think that book, it ends on that note where there is accountability, there is justice, there is some recourse for all of these things that, that happened. So many more questions I want to ask you about the book, but I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Um, but they should know there's an audio book. There's an audio version uh, in case you're, there in is. case you'd rather listen to it. Um, Andy doesn't narrate it, unfortunately, uh, because your voice is fantastic. Fortunately, very fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to tell everybody where they can find it? Um, is there, is there, would you prefer they buy it on Amazon or somewhere else? Um, and, uh, and anything else you want to leave listeners with before we hop over to Politicology Plus? Feel free to buy it on Amazon. The Audible version is available there as well. If you want to purchase it from somewhere else, andycroll.com, my name. I have links on the, on the front page there. I, I think that, I think our listeners will both find it a book that is a page turner. I mean, I yeah. wrote it that way. I yeah, wanted it to, it's written like to pull this you through. captivating novel and you will learn so much along the way. Maybe more than you want to, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a riveting read as well. I hope I thank you. I hope that it would that it would feel like it was that it would the story was pulling you through while at the same time, you know, absorbing a few lessons about our politics and and and, and that. So yes, um, and also I should say it places you in the information landscape that we're in today. It really carries you through to like you will see it all around you now, and I think it just makes the 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 problem of um, of our, of our information environment, all the more real. Um, and, and it, in a way it sort of makes sense of, of how we got to where we are. That was my goal. So thank you for saying that. I, I hope that people who read it feel the same way. Okay. Andy, um, we're going to hop over to Politicology Plus and we're going to talk about some recent reporting that you just broke about the largest donation in political history. Before we do that, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at Andy Kroll, nice and easy. And you can go to my website, andycroll.com. Lots of updates there as well on the book and all the other journalistic work that I've got cooking up. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. 
I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.